At the latest count, 312 people were killed for their beliefs in England and Wales between 1555 and 1558, during the reign of the Roman Catholic Queen Mary Tudor. One of them was hanged, drawn and quartered, and 26 died in prison. All the others were burned alive, including a number of women and teenagers. No wonder the first Tudor Queen has for centuries been known as Bloody Queen Mary. She killed Protestants, we're usually told, because she was a stupid religious bigot. It was all part of a doomed attempt after Henry VIII's break with Rome and the reign of his Protestant son, Edward VI, to make England Catholic again. Historians now know that almost everything in this traditional Bloody Mary story is completely wrong. It's certainly true that over 300 people were killed, but exactly why is becoming more and more of a mystery. How could such a chain of tragic events ever have come about? Well, we find ourselves starting almost from scratch. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Look, let's say straight away that we're not trying to excuse or explain away the death of over 300 people for their beliefs in the 1550s. It's a shocking stain on the English past. What we're trying to do here is to understand what happened a little bit better. And the reason for that is that historians of this period now agree that this is a story that has been, until surprisingly recently, very badly misrepresented. We believe that we now all owe it, at the very least, to the victims to get the story straight. In 2020, the historian Alexander Sampson looked up from a desk covered in academic books and papers about Mary Tudor and wrote that when it comes to understanding her reign, quotes, it feels as if we are at the start. At the start? Yeah, that's an extraordinary thing to say, 450 years after Mary died. But the fact is that over the last 10 or 20 years, academic historians have entirely rewritten the history of Mary's reign. So anything you read that's older than that... Oh, with one or two honourable exceptions. ...is now completely outdated. It is just not worth reading anymore. Yep. Open the window and throw it out. Well, there are two simple reasons for this revolution. The first is that well, ever since Mary died, childless, at the age of just 42 in 1558, the history of her reign was written almost exclusively by English Protestant historians. Well, Mary, of course, was a Catholic. After her father Henry VIII's break with the Pope and the short reign of his Protestant son Edward VI, Mary had briefly restored the Catholic Church in England. However, when she died without an heir, her half-sister Elizabeth abruptly, and as it turned out permanently, switched England back to being Protestant again. So English historians, writing from a strongly Protestant point of view, always jumped to the conclusion that Mary was a failure. In fact, they portrayed her as bigoted, stupid, short-sighted and old-fashioned. And, for what it's worth, ugly. Ugly. 
You don't need us to tell you that this kind of half-baked posturing no longer has any place in the way we do history. The only surprise is that it took almost until the end of the last century before anybody woke up to what they were doing. We've discovered that we have to stop thinking about the reign of Mary Tudor from a Protestant point of view. We also have to stop thinking about her in a parochially English way. We need to know what was going on in the rest of Europe. And we also need to think along a much longer timeline. We need to understand what historians now believe to have been going on, both in England and in Europe, since at least the 1520s. The second reason Mary's reign has until very recently been badly misunderstood is that so much of her history, and especially the burning of so-called heretics, has been taken from a single source. That source was written by John Fox, a Protestant preacher and author who fled during Mary's reign to Strasbourg and then to Frankfurt and Basel. There he began to sketch a history of early Christian martyrdom. Back in England, after Elizabeth had come to the throne, Fox turned his attention to the people who'd been executed for their beliefs under Mary. Finally, in 1563, five years after Mary's death, Fox produced a book which he called Acts and Monuments. Actually, of course, it had half a page of title, but Acts and Monuments is what it's known as amongst academic historians. (laughs) But ever since then, it's been generally known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. Well, Fox's book is immense. It's over 1,800 pages long, even in its first edition. And as Fox discovered more and more material, his book went through three more editions and got longer and longer. By 1583, it was 2,154 pages. Fox quotes his original sources at length and includes graphic woodcuts of martyrs being burned at the stake. For a while, it was said that Fox's book of martyrs was almost as common in parish churches as the Bible was. So you have to say that it's little wonder that for generations, English Protestant historians looked little further for their information than Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox's painstakingly reconstructed account of a vicious persecution of saintly Protestant martyrs led personally by Queen Mary Tudor and carried through by a clique of religious bigots against the mounting opposition of almost all the population became one of the most certain certainties of English history. And of course, it's what everybody still believes. Except that is academic historians. Who've at last thrown all of that old nonsense out. Well, Fox's Martyrs, of course, fails the most basic test of historical reliability. Any 13-year-old school student could tell you that a narrative of Mary's Catholic reign written by an Elizabethan Protestant would have to be treated with extreme caution. And the more you know about this period, the more problems you discover with Fox's account. Let's start with the most basic. In 1554, Mary married Philip of Spain, one of the most powerful men in the world. But Fox simply wrote Philip and his huge Spanish entourage out of the story. The reasons aren't difficult to discover. When Fox was writing during the 1560s, relations between Elizabeth's Protestant England and Philip's Catholic Spain were strained, but still, against the odds, holding up. Philip needed English support against the French, and the English needed any allies they could get. And the Spanish had historically been the obvious choice. In particular, Philip of Spain had so far succeeded in persuading successive popes not to excommunicate the Protestant Queen Elizabeth. It was 
Inconceivable, therefore, that Fox, writing in 1563, could possibly blame the Spanish for what had happened during Mary's reign. After all, Fox made what little money he did through his connections at court and dedicated his book to Queen Elizabeth. He absolutely needed to get his diplomatic soldiers in a row and stay in with the right people. Even more important was the problem of Elizabeth's marriage. In 1563, when Fox's book was first published, Elizabeth was already 30 and the problem of getting her married and producing an heir was beginning both to be pressing and to prove extremely tricky to solve. Elizabeth had turned down a whole series of offers. Including one, in fact, from King Philip of Spain. Her former brother-in-law. Nice. One of the key problems in finding a husband was knowing exactly what powers Elizabeth would retain and what would pass to her husband if she were to marry. Legally and traditionally, a woman in England at this time was ruled by her husband. Even progressive Renaissance thinkers, often known as humanists, doubted that a woman would have the wit to rule a kingdom in her own right. Exactly what powers the Queen would retain if she married remained an unresolved and extremely delicate and politically explosive question throughout the 1560s and beyond. In fact, it was probably one of the key reasons Elizabeth would stay unmarried until she died. Well, there was only one precedent to go on since England had only ever had one queen. And that was Mary. In the circumstances, therefore, Fox could not for a single second suggest that Mary had lost any of her authority when she had married King Philip in July 1554. There was no alternative at all but to describe everything that happened in Mary's reign as if the marriage had made no difference. Whatever had happened, including the persecution of heretics, which began in January 1555, months after Philip's arrival in England and his marriage to Mary, Fox had to write it up as if it had all been Mary's policy and hers alone. But you only have to stop for a moment to realise that that can't possibly be true. The execution of over 300 heretics during the reign of Queen Mary has, until the last 20 years or so, been treated by English historians as the work of a bigoted and foolish Catholic monarch. It has recently become clear, however, that we need to take a completely fresh look at this whole episode. And we need to start by thinking about Mary's marriage. In July 1554, Mary married her cousin, Prince Philip of Spain. He had in fact just been created King of Naples. In 1555, he would become Lord of the Netherlands and in 1556, King of Spain and hence Master of Spain's growing overseas empire. His father, meanwhile, Charles V, was Holy Roman Emperor, a nominally elective position that gave Charles some limited rule over what is now Germany. In 1556, the title passed to Philip's uncle Ferdinand. Well, anyway, all that together meant that Philip and his various family ruled half the Western world. Philip was 27 in 1554 when he married Mary, who was 38. It was, of course, a diplomatic marriage intended to encircle the French, who were the bitter enemies of Philip's family, the Habsburgs. Had Philip and Mary had a child, he or she would have inherited a joint kingdom of England and the Netherlands. And since by far the most important English trading connection abroad was Antwerp, this joint kingdom would have been an extraordinarily powerful cross-channel trading, banking and seagoing entity. 
It was not, of course, to be, since Mary died childless, for reasons that have long been misunderstood and which we'll later sort out. But the point here is that in 1554, little, impoverished, feeble, marginal, (laughs) widely ignored, unimportant England briefly joined what was then the world's greatest empire. Indeed, for a number of months, in 1554 and 1555, and again in 1557, when Philip was in London, the city became one of the world's great capitals. Now, of course, all this was very confusing for traditional English historians. It can't possibly have been the case, can it, that Philip, a Spaniard, actually ruled England. No, surely Mary kept him in his place, presumably her bedroom in the hope of making an heir. It was easier to believe such an extraordinarily unlikely tale because Mary's counsellors were also anxious about the arrangement. They drew up a long prenuptial agreement that limited what Philip could do. He couldn't, for example, take Mary abroad or force England to war. And these clauses Philip duly observed. But he never signed the agreement and never took the slightest notice of the rest of it. (laughs) He signed himself El Rey, the king. In documents and on its coins, England was ruled by a joint monarchy. Philip and Mary. Just as 130 years later, it would be jointly ruled by William and Mary. In fact, it's more than high time that we all stop talking about the reign of Queen Mary. And we started referring to the period, at least from 1554 to 1558, correctly as the reign of Philip and Mary. And that's what we're going to do. It was also the case, as we've seen, that a married woman, even a queen, was in 16th century thinking, expected to obey her husband. This, you recall, was the problem that Elizabeth faced and eventually avoided by not marrying. There were plenty of extremely bright, feisty Tudor women of whom Mary, her mother Catherine, her grandmother Elizabeth of York and her great-grandmother Margaret Beaufort were robust examples. So was her half-sister Elizabeth. But asserting a woman's authority in Tudor society was always tricky and had to be achieved by a certain amount of guile. Even if you were a queen... Have I heard that before about being a woman? Bring to mind any of Shakespeare's leading women. Played on stage, of course, always by men. And you get the idea. Married Tudor women never explicitly ruled anything in this period, except by proxy through their husbands. Well, the upshot of all this is that we should literally laugh out of court the notion that Mary, an English 16th century woman, could have dictated anything at all to Philip, her husband, and the Spanish king, oh, and also king of Naples, and lord of the Netherlands, and... Monarch of half of South America. (laughs) Basically, ruler of half the world. Even most of the money sloshing about at the English court in the 1550s came with Philip, along with the four... Yeah, that's 4,000. 4,000 Spaniards he brought with him. Now, Philip was advised by his long-experienced father, Charles V, que se deje ver con frecuencia del pueblo, que demuestre no querer apoderarse de la administración. That he should be seen by the people frequently to prove that he doesn't want to take over the administration of the country. Similarly, said Charles... Comendra hacer alguna demostración con el pueblo, haciéndole esperar benignidad, justiciar y libertad. Uh, in other words, it would be convenient to make a public appearance in which he shows kindness, justice and freedom. And it might be interesting to remember that Philip's father had been engaged to a nine-year-old Mary, but opted, perhaps more sensibly, to marry a Portuguese adult princess. Well, that's back in the 1520s, and of course the adult Portuguese princess was very... Wealthy, much more so than (laughs) 
England was in those days. Now, we know that in practice, what Philip did was almost immediately to set up a Spanish-style Consejo Escogido, a select council, consisting of eight, uh, possibly nine, of England's shrewdest and most experienced councillors. Now, while Mary never went to these select council meetings, or indeed to the broader Privy Council, Philip attended his Consejo Escogido on Tuesdays and Fridays when he was in England, and had their affairs reported to him for approval when he wasn't. Look, you really have no alternative but to conclude that between July 1554 and November 1558, England technically had a joint monarchy. But in practice, it was effectively being governed by Philip of Spain. Generations of unsympathetic English Protestant history have led us to imagine Mary as a scowling, embittered and dour middle-aged woman and Philip as an unloving, over-religious and humorless madman. Put the two of them together and we conjure a cold nightmare of dark Spanish and tight-fisted English tedium. Well, it couldn't be further from the truth. The court of Philip and Mary, he, you remember, in his 20s and she in her 30s, was a glittering succession of parties and cultural events that rivalled anything staged by Henry VIII in his prime. Historian Alexander Sampson, writing just over the last couple of years, has shown that Philip and Mary presided over an outpouring of print and music, and entertainments and scholarship. Where do you hear that? The court was filled with Dutch and Italians as well as Spanish. Spanish cash flowed freely and courtiers were decked in fine jewellery. Festivities went on for 15 days at a stretch with bull running in the Spanish Juegos de Cañas. Well, the latest thing in Spain, a game in which teams of horsemen charge each other, armed with wooden spears, defending themselves with shields. But there were also the Burgundian-style jousts, old Henry VIII's favourite, a mixture of charging with lances and melees with swords, in which Philip fought in the Tudor colours of blue and yellow. During the reign of Philip and Mary, says Sampson, the English court enjoyed, quotes, an unrivalled magnificence and sophistication, not seen for decades nor seen again. It was certainly all a very stark contrast to the small, cold and mean court later kept by Elizabeth. And you really have to take that seriously, those of you who are fans of Elizabeth, that her court is now known by historians to have been a pretty miserable place. Uh, let alone the interminable hunting of James I after her. Which we go into in our series on the gunpowder plot. We certainly do. Mary, we now know, was a shrewd and accomplished modern humanist and extremely well-read in the latest Renaissance literature. Philip was a young and notorious ladies' man, plenty of money to throw around. But Philip was no fool, and it seems that even if this was, as both sides knew, a diplomatic mariage de convenance, he played his part with good grace and common sense. His servants consistently said that Philip es inglés y no español. He's English and not Spanish. Which is an extraordinary thing given the circumstances. 
Of course, there were some early awkwardnesses, if that's the word, and suspicion, even some fighting in the corridors and streets between the Spanish and English. The English moaned that the men who got closest to Philip were always Spanish. Hardly a surprise. And traditionally, historians have made a big play of all this. But beyond all this largely trivial posturing, it now looks as if Philip effectively governed England through his small consejo of Englishmen. The notion that Mary was a political fool is a later invention. She had always been one of England's wealthiest individuals, like her mother, in fact, running large estates and known informally anyway as the Princess of Wales. She seemed to have worked very hard. Yes, she was described as Mary in the morning, Martha in the afternoon, which presumably means that she read or prayed in the mornings and spent her afternoons hard at administrative business. She was also said to have gone on working late into the evening. All of which is a bit curious, since although she signed many documents, including all her accounts, which she seemed to have gone through very carefully, like her grandfather Henry VII, scarcely any papers have survived that are actually in Mary's own writing. Historian Alexander Sampson points to some decisions which were made against Philip's advice, uh, in particular not to get Mary's half-sister Elizabeth out of the way by marrying her off to one of Philip's relatives, but these examples seem to have been the exceptions rather than the rule, and Samson adds that Philip's own counsellors so often found little weasley ways to get round his instructions that they had a special name for it. Yeah, they called it obedezco pero no cumplo, which means literally, I obey, but I don't comply. I think that's a very useful phrase. You have to conclude that Philip was so secure in his rule that a bit of fancy footwork over details by his counsellors, or even by his wife really made little difference. He was in charge. Meanwhile, the rest of the English nobility were having a good time. And that was very important. Among the nobles, in noticeable contrast to all the other Tudor reigns, there was not a murmur of discontent. Nor, unlike all the other Tudors, was there a single religious rebellion. No, Wyatt's rebellion in 1554, which you might have heard about, the only serious rebellion was actually a protest at the Spanish marriage. Its leaders were largely Protestant, but they had to keep that quiet for fear of losing their rank-and-file supporters. The point is that the European Catholic court of Philip and Mary worked extremely well. We should celebrate it as one of England's better achievements. Hurrah! <laughs> But let's return to our original question. How was it that the English Catholic regime of the 1550s ended up executing over 300 Protestants in less than four years? Burning many of them at the stake. This can't any longer be written off as the policy of a foolish and bigoted Catholic queen. In this period, England was a dual monarchy governed by Philip and Mary, and there can be no doubt at all that it was Philip who was taking the big decisions. Aha, you'll say. So the campaign against heresy was really a piece of dark Spanish Catholic tyranny. Remember the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Well, we shall see that this too is something of a myth. The Spanish Inquisition, after all, executed fewer people in the whole of the 16th century than Philip and Mary did in four years. Anyway, it's now clear that Philip was not running the country on his own or with the Spanish, but with his English Select Council. And take a closer look. Philip's Consejo Cogido turned out to have been the Tudor period's most able government. 
You see, one of the traditional Victorian slurs against Mary's government was that she tried to govern with an enormous and hopelessly divided council. It could never have worked, silly Mary. But back in 1986, the American historian Dale Hoke produced a new and commonsensical analysis of her council. Simply speaking, he found that Philippa Mary's council contained two distinct groups. The first were the men, and it's always, of course, the men, who'd rallied to Mary from the 6th of July, 1553, when Edward died. Mary had had to get away from London because it had become obvious that Edward's very Protestant councillors were going to try to proclaim the young Protestant Lady Jane Grey as Queen, even though she had virtually no claim at all to the throne. If she'd stayed anywhere near London, Mary risked being imprisoned, or worse. For some weeks, therefore, Mary holed up in East Anglia. There she collected a rather ragbag force of supporters and began to move, warily at first, but then rapidly and without any opposition, toward the capital. The men who rallied to Mary in these very early days were, as John said, a hotchpotch of Catholic friends and local landowners. One of them, Lord Wentworth, actually turned up in full armour with a private army. But by the 20th of July, 1553, that's a fortnight after Edward's death, it was becoming obvious to everyone that there was widespread enthusiasm across the country for Mary to become Queen and to return to the Catholic Church. And that isn't something that you hear very often. Now, the makeup of Mary's advisers significantly changed. A succession of Edward's old councillors turned up coming to make their peace with her, uh, begging her pardon for having supported Queen Jane and committing themselves now to work with Mary. Intelligently, Mary now appointed 17 of these former councillors from Henry and Edward's reigns to her privy council. Well, the result of all this was that with the hurriedly enlisted war councillors and then the sensibly recruited old hands from Henry and Edward's time, Mary's privy council theoretically ended up with 55 members. Well, that was more than enough for Protestant English historians traditionally to laugh and jump to the conclusion it must have been far too unwieldy to do anything properly. Inevitably, ambassadors at the court began to gossip, and they always did gossip, about squabbles between this faction and that faction, and the tradition of the complete breakdown of Marian government became fixed in historical memory. The historian A.F. Pollard wrote in 1910, quotes, sterility was the conclusive note of her reign. It's a disgraceful and insulting verdict that has been since repeated again and again. Sterility was the conclusive note of her reign. Remember, she was childless. Pollard also wrote that Mary burnt people just to satisfy, quote, the cravings of a mind diseased in a disordered frame. Well, that's a verdict that fewer modern historians have felt able to parrot, although they appear to believe it. All this is ridiculous. It's now clear that Mary had assembled what was probably the most capable administration in the whole of the Tudor period. When Edward VI died and his councillors tried to put the young Protestant Lady Jane Grey on the throne, Mary had had to accept whatever help she could get. But it became very rapidly clear that there was widespread enthusiasm for Mary to become Queen. So, just a fortnight after Edward's death, his councillors began turning up and begging Mary's pardon. Shrewdly and courageously, she not only accepted their apologies, but recruited them into her own 
government. In fact, we have, as we've seen, discovered that once Philip arrived in England in July 1554, he quickly established a Spanish-style Consejo Escogido, a select council that in practice governed the kingdom, in regular consultation with him. And Philip's Consejo was almost entirely recruited from the experienced old hands who'd previously served Henry and Edward. Now this turns out to be very significant indeed. You see, it's worth stopping for a moment to look around the council table. Here we find William Paget, Henry VIII's former Secretary of State, a man who'd collaborated with both of the young Edward's protectors, because he was a child, he had to have protectors, the Duke of Somerset and the Duke of Northumberland. There was also William Peter, well it's pronounced Peter but spelt P-E-T-R-E, who'd also been Secretary of State to both Henry and Edward. And next along are two more long-standing royal servants, the Earl of Arundel and William Paulet, the Marquess of Winchester, who was something of a financial expert. And then there is the Lord Chancellor, Stephen Gardiner, Bishop of Winchester. But uh, we'll stick to calling him Gardiner so we don't get confused with William Paulet, the Marquess of Winchester. <laughs> There's also the Welsh Earl of Pembroke, brother-in-law of Henry's last Queen Catherine Parr, and also Thomas Thirlby, at first Bishop of Norwich and then later Bishop of Ely. Now, the only men in the room who could be described as Mary's confidant were Robert Rochester, a capable Essex gentleman who had for years been controller of her household. And then, theoretically, the council also included her cousin, Cardinal Reginald Poole, uh, spelled P-O-L-E, who had arrived in England in November 1554 and would later be Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, we should notice two things about this select group. First was that if you ignore Rochester and Poole, and it looks as if the others probably did, certainly Poole doesn't ever seem to have attended the select council, this was an extremely experienced collection of men. Indeed, as we've just said, you could put up a strong argument to say that Philip and Mary had assembled the most able council of the entire Tudor period. Paget, Winchester and Peter all had decades of royal service going back to the early 1530s. Stephen Gardner had been negotiating with the Pope on Henry's behalf all the way back in 1527. And even before that, Gardner had been working with Henry's chief minister, Cardinal Wolsey. Now, this is extraordinary. Henry VII had tried to govern with a clique of very unpopular financiers. Henry VIII had ruled long and peacefully and successfully through Cardinal Wolsey, and then uh, briefly, tyrannously and disastrously through Thomas Cromwell. After that, he tried to run things himself. Uh, with a bitterly divided council flopping from one side to another on every issue that mattered. Edward's council had been equally divided. For a time, while the king's uncle was Lord Protector, that was Somerset, the council had been pretty much ignored altogether. Later, Elizabeth would rule through what is now seen by historians as a bleak and dangerously narrow clique of friends and relations. But Philip and Mary's councillors were a shrewd and extremely experienced lot. They achieved, in a few years, a truly impressive number of reforms, getting royal accounting properly organised in the Exchequer, re-evaluating crown lands, updating customs duties, establishing for the first time a properly financed Royal Navy, and much besides. And this, despite a run of terrible weather and poor harvests, and a flu epidemic that may possibly, some say, have killed as much as 20% of the population. Well, look, this is about as far from sterile government as the Tudors ever got. 
Yes, the more time you spend at this glittering court of Philip and Mary, the more extraordinary and unfamiliar the situation becomes, and the more difficult to explain the execution of over 300 Protestants. Now, if the campaign against heresy was launched not by a silly Catholic queen, but by a regime led by Philip and his select council of Englishmen, it wasn't for want of men with huge experience, enormous political nous and administrative savoir-faire. They knew exactly what they were doing. The mystery becomes even more baffling when we start to consider the religious background of Philip's select council, the men who were governing the realm with him. In fact, it becomes completely startling. After the death of the Protestant King Edward VI, most of his former councillors came to offer their loyalty to the new Catholic Queen, Mary. Very shrewdly, she took most of them into her privy council. And then, when King Philip arrived and set up a select council to govern the realm with him, the men he chose came almost entirely from these former councillors of Edward. Now, this created an extraordinary situation. Not only were the Catholic King Philip's new select councillors extremely experienced, but they were almost all of them Protestants. Let's start with Bishop Thurlby. He'd been one of Henry VIII's chaplains through his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, Mary's mother, and his separation from the Pope. He'd then been made a bishop by Henry's very Protestant Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Stephen Gardiner was another of Cranmer's bishops. As we see in our series on Henry's break with Rome, Gardner had been one of Henry's personal team of theologians and diplomats. In fact, Gardner had been one of those who'd gone to Italy and negotiated personally with the Pope. He then helped Henry push through the break with Rome. Gardner had, in fact, subsequently written a book called De Vera Obedientia, which was one of the most sophisticated defences of Henry's seizure of the supremacy over the English church. Well, if that's not Protestant, I don't know what it is. The Peter family was later Catholic, but William Peter had come to court as a contact of Anne Boleyn's family. He'd then become Thomas Cromwell's right-hand man in dismantling every single one of the nation's monasteries and stealing their land, taking indeed thousands of acres of it for himself. In just one 15-month period, Peter had personally closed down 33 monasteries. Peter had occupied a key position as Secretary of State to both Henry VIII and Edward VI, and under Edward had even served on Protestant commissions set up to investigate heresy. William Paget had been at the heart of a coup that, when Henry died, had put the extreme Protestant Earl of Harford in power. As we shall see, the Earl promptly made himself the Duke of Somerset and set about an immediate and brutal enforcement of Protestantism on the English and Welsh parishes. Historian Dermot McCulloch describes Paget not only as an ally of Somerset, but also of Henry VIII's arch-Protestant Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. And McCulloch should know he's written an enormous biography of Cranmer. As Edward lay dying, Paget was so committed to Protestantism that he supported the completely madcap scheme to crown Lady Jane Grey. I mean, just think about it. Not only did she have the weakest possible claim, but she was a young woman of just 16 she couldn't even become queen in her own right for another two years. And until then, England had never had a queen. And pushing Lady Jane Grey onto the throne just because she was 
Protestant was a recipe for civil instability and disaster. But apparently having a Protestant queen had in 1553 been more important to William Paget than the stability of the kingdom. The Marquis of Winchester, the financial expert, is traditionally reckoned to have been a secret Catholic. Uh, but just hold on a minute here. He'd been one of the judges who'd sentenced both John Fisher and then Thomas More to death for their refusal to accept the royal supremacy after Henry VIII had split with Rome. Both are now saints of the Catholic Church. They are indeed. Winchester had then been given Thomas More's estate. Mm -hmm. He'd also openly supported the extreme Protestant reforms under Edward. During the few days in which the Protestant Lady Jane Grey was proclaimed as Queen, it was Winchester who took the crown to her to see if it needed altering to fit. She incidentally objected to trying it on, sensible woman. Sensible girl. <laughs> and as for the Earl of Pembroke, well, he'd gone so far as to marry his son to Lady Jane Grey's sister. They regretted that later. Cardinal Poole, of course, was Catholic, but as we shall see, even he was more than sympathetic to Protestant Lutherans. And it doesn't look anyway as if he ever attended the select council. Robert Rochester had been controller of Mary's household during Edward's reign and had been imprisoned for his Catholicism. But you can't get around the conclusion that all the others in this select council had for decades, until Mary came to the throne, played prominent and even leading roles in regimes that were trying to establish Protestantism in England. Now, there'll be some aficionados who will be already shouting at their iPhones and saying, ah, uh, Stephen Gardner, now, and hadn't he been among the more conservative of Henry VIII's advisers? You can hear their iPhones buzzing. <laughs> He'd then been imprisoned for his conservative religious views throughout Edward's reign. But uh, you have to agree that as Bishop of Winchester, Gardner had loudly defended Henry VIII's supremacy over the English church and went on defending it through Henry's reign and Edward's reign. Arundel had also briefly been thrown into prison under Edward and by January 1553, Paget and some of the other councillors had been denouncing the more extreme of the Protestant preachers. Yeah, they were calling them prating knaves. I like that. But the point here is that, as we shall see, the Protestant revolution that occurred under Edward was so extreme and so unpopular that in 1549 it had provoked rebellion, wait for it, in every single county in the land and opposition pretty nearly as widely again in 1553. Opposing that didn't make you a Catholic. It just made you a middle-of-the-road Protestant. Mostly the men in Philip's select council had just gone on doggedly doing, in fact taking a leading role, in the government's business throughout the long Protestant decades of Henry and Edward, the split with Rome, the dissolution of the monasteries, the end of the Latin Mass, and a great deal more. And you can't get away from the fact that almost all of them had then backed Protestant Lady Jane Grey over Catholic Mary. OK, step back. Take all of this evidence together. Breathe deeply. Here we are, face to face, with an extraordinary possibility. It's one that, as far as we can discover, historians of the reign of Philip and Mary have yet really begun to explore. What seems to have occurred is this... The terrible Catholic persecution of heretics under the joint monarchy of Philip and Mary was, in reality, the work of a government that had at its heart a select council, almost all of whose members were themselves, at the very least, sympathetic to Protestants, and had in practice long been complicit in establishing Protestantism in England. 
In fact, almost all of them have for years been personally living and practising as Protestants. Two of them had even been consecrated as Protestant bishops. Well, if that isn't an historical heresy, then I don't know what is. It's certainly a historical mystery, and we'll start trying to unravel it next time at the History Café. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Café and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Café Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Café Pod and spread the word. Spread the word.